back. Second hour underway. Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender. Pursuing the American dream. Getting that house closed on today. Very had, uh, glad to have you all joining us today. Uh, visiting from the Fine Institute of Rational Thought, my own creation, long ago. We do have two guests. One, I, I want to get to Hal Weatherman. Uh, there was a call at the top of the last hour, and, and I want to make sure we get to him first. So, Hal, we'll just stand by for a second. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. How the heck are you today? Hey, Chad. Good to talk to you again. Been a while. Yes, sir. Always a pleasure. Hey, so uh, I was I was listening. I, I saw that same Atlantic article that you had gotten, and I wanted to kind of chime in on it because it it kind of syncs up with some stuff that I've been I've been noticing. Um, you know, I don't know if you keep up with with folks like Matt Taibbi or Glenn Greenwald or Barry Weiss, but these are all folks. Who all of them kind of started on the left or were considered part of the left in the press, but they're kind of more classical liberals, and one after the other. They've had done to them what they're now trying to do to Joe Rogan, which is essentially yes. they've been pushed out of their place in the leftist intelligentsia, and they found themselves kind of politically homeless. And so I've been reading their substacks and kind of sitting in on some of the uh, video roundtables that they've been having, and they're tracing a slow but steady movement of folks who considered themselves kind of in the middle that now are finding themselves by default being lumped in with folks on the right. And even though they don't really consider themselves to be conservatives, as I would say probably Joe Rogan doesn't either, they're being hit with that label because they're dissenting from the narrative. And since yep. you're going to be talking to Hal, and I don't know how involved with GOP planning and stuff he is, I think it's important for them to realize that that's out there and to maybe tailor their messaging accordingly because these folks don't necessarily care so much about tax rates and redistricting and things like that. What they care about are my kids don't know when they're going to be in school. Right. They're masked when they're there. The hospitals are still ridiculous, and I don't know if I can get in to see my loved ones. And I yep. want to know what the off-ramp is. And any Republican, I think, that goes into the fall that's missing out on that messaging is leaving votes on the table. Uh, well said, Adam. Always, uh, always appreciate the call, man. Thanks for being a part of the show. So, Adam, I I think everyone's there. Now, can we move? And, Adam, thank you for the call. Hal Weatherman. So I'm going to set this up a little bit. I hope we've got it all good. But uh, so Hal Weatherman was with Dan Force for years, formerly worked with Sue Myrick, and has been in Congress, not as a congressman, but as, as chief of staff. He has connections all over the state, all over the country, and he is a one of the brightest political minds. Now, you say what you will, the, the, what happened with the Cooper campaign and, the, and, and Dan Force's campaign, but you have to look across the board. Democrats were livid that during the campaign, Cooper was more concerned about Cooper than any other race, and he should have been, kind of, but he should have allowed it to open up. It was clear they were afraid if things were to open up too much, everyone could raise money and it would be a much more competitive race because I still think Hal had a solid ground game. But now it's how interesting they just savaged former Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest on masking stuff, and look at where we are today. Hal, welcome to the show. How the heck are you? Chad, I'm awesome. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on. You All are that. Now, yeah. it, I do want to get to the story you posted, though. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I want you to comment on Cooper. But this story, so, you know, and I'll, I'm going to paraphrase, but I want you to tell the whole story because it, you got called by the governor, you and Dan, second term, to go up to a meeting about the 13 original colonies. And I want you to take it from there because there's so much about that story that's germane today. 
Yeah, sure. It's highly relevant with all the redistricting things that are going on. And I posted it uh, because I thought people would want to know just an interesting kind of insider's look at the whole process. Um, Dan Forrest, uh, at that time, this was January 2017, we had just won our second term as lieutenant governor. Um, uh, governor Cooper had just won his first term as governor. I believe it was the first or second week in office. The governor's obviously setting up a new administration. Uh, we're pretty well established at that point going into our second term. Uh, Cooper calls Dan uh, on his cell and just says, hey, look, I've been invited to represent the state of North Carolina up in Philadelphia. Um, they're, they're trying to get the governors of the original 13 colonies present for uh, the dedication of the American Revolution Museum, which, by the way, if no one's ever gone, you need to go. It's Smithsonian quality. It's amazing. And uh, he just thought, you know, just thought it would be a shame for North Carolina not to be represented. We, in the spirit of bipartisanship, agreed. And Dan said, I'd be happy to go uh, represent the state. And so uh, I went with them. We went to Philly. And uh, we were there for two, three days for the dedication. The night of us arriving, uh, Ed Rendell, who was the host, the head of the host committee, Ed Rendell's the former governor of, of uh, Pennsylvania and uh, was also the former national chairman of the Democrat National Committee. He invited us to dinner. We go to dinner, and we're joined by all the governors that were there. Um, uh, the current governor of Pennsylvania at that time, who's still the, the, the current governor, uh, Fox, uh, was there. The governor of Massachusetts, uh, Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia. Uh, I believe the lieutenant governor of Rhode Island was there as well. I think he was the only other lieutenant governor. Dan was there. I was there. There were other governors. But you know, it was a very surreal moment. We actually met in the same room that our forefathers gathered in in Philadelphia. I mean, it was really, it was, it was a cool moment. Uh, we had dinner, we had, you know, cocktails before and, and we're seated. I'm seated next to Dan on one side of me. I got governor Rendell on the other Dan seated next to, uh, governor uh, Terry McCullough and a reminder, Terry McCullough is also the former national uh, head of the Democrat national, um, committee national. And then also, well-known, documented, you know, confidant of the Clinton family. And, you know, we're sitting around, we're talking. It, it's very clear through the conversation that nobody in this room knows that Dan Forrest is a Republican. Um, they're all and th this is important. This is an important part oh, of the yeah. story. It, I it just is, want to make sure. Just through, the com just through the conversation, it was very clear yeah. that they didn't know. And, and we've been nice. I mean, there was nothing. Two former, two former national right. chairmen for the party. Two former national Correct. chairmen of the party, one on each side. One on each side. And so, you know, the night starts going long, and just out of the blue, um, Terry McCullough says, hey, while we've got everybody gathered here, let's talk some shop. Let's talk business. Let me tell you about this interesting thing that I'm doing. Um, I'm working with uh, Bill Clinton, working with George Soros, uh, working, uh, you know, with um, uh, Eric Holder is going to run this thing. We are going to raise, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a staggering number, three, $400 million, whatever it takes. And we are going to sue in all the Republican-led uh, states. And he even looked over at Dan and said, we're coming to your state too, Governor. You'll like that. And, you know, Dan's kicking me under the table because he has absolutely, <laughs> again, we know that they know that we're not, they don't know we're Republicans. And he says, and here's what we're going to do. And it was very open. I mean, they, again, they thought they were in, in, in among friends. And we are going to sue, and we're going to judge shop. We're going to look for liberal judges. 
and we're going to sue on redistricting. We're going to make the Republicans look out to be to look like racial bigots, and um, and we'll win some, and in some we'll lose, but we'll win in the long run because by the time we're done with them, you know, um, the black community will have nothing to do with them. We'll just absolutely eviscerate them. And just In other words, make, make every Republican look like a racist bigot, and that's the plan. It's 2017. And of course, 2017. And Dan literally like, leans over and says, they have no clue. And I said, no, they don't. And so we're literally kicking each other, almost laughing. And, and, and then the night goes on, and you know they start serving drinks. And, of course, Dan's a teetotaler, and I very rarely drink. And so... You know, we're just kind of taking it all in, let let the liquor flow, and let people talk freely. And Chair McAuliffe is having a conversation now, with Dan. I can hear now how right me. how yeah. the beauty of radio is. I need to take a break here, so I've got. To, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go out at this break, and then we'll come back. Continue with Hal Weatherman. Continuing our story, Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender. Hope Pete's having fun, acquiring and signing papers and stuff on this new house. But we have with us Hal Weatherman here. Uh, on the show today, and it's it's a pleasure. For those who don't know, Hal Weatherman used to be chief of staff for Sue Myrick, actually was a uh, chief of staff also for Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, chief strategist, an amazing guy with a, with a, with a uh, just a tremendous wealth of experience. He was recalling the story where he went to represent with Dan Forrest, the state of North Carolina, 13 original colonies up in Philadelphia, and they're having dinner, and they're sitting, they find themselves, the Lieutenant Governor at the time, entering his second term, sitting between two DNC former national chiefs and former governors, Rendell and, and also Terry McAuliffe. And they're talking, and, and they didn't realize that Dan and Howe were Republicans. And, and as things as the evening progressed, they started discussing, here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise a ton of money. We're going to go out. We're going to sue these Republican states. We're going to judge shop. We're going to find friendly judges. And we may not win every case, but by the time we're done, everybody will think Republicans are a bunch of racist bigots. And Hal, I'll let you take it from there because, you know, that's, it's a lot more to the story. Yeah. So, so then, you know, Terry McAuliffe, you know, we're sitting, we're eating dessert, actually. And he looks over at Dan while he's eating and says, uh, so Dan, he's just making small talk. What's it like? Uh, what's it like presiding over a right wing general assembly? He meant it in a derogatory way, as a joke. And Dan said, "Oh, it's great. That's great." And <laughs> Terry McAuliffe laughed and said, "Yeah, right, right." And Dan kicked me under the table. And then he said, "Well, uh, how is your first term going?" And Dan said, "Thinking Dan's in his first term as lieutenant governor." And Dan said, "Well, my first term was great, and my second term." is off to a really good start. It's going strong. And he said, no, I mean, your first term as lieutenant governor. <laughs> and Dan said, my first term as lieutenant governor was great. My second term as lieutenant governor has started off really strong. And he said, yeah, but the first term, Pat McCrory, was good. Are you, wait, are you, and, and you could tell he's tongue-tied. You could see it. You could literally see it in his face, the realization. And Dan said, you know that I'm a Republican, right? And no the entire room got death quiet. Every, everything stopped. Every fork hit the table. And Terry McAuliffe said, hey, guys, uh, Dan here is a Republican. And Dan said, yep. And he said, listen, about that, um, Terry McAuliffe said, about that redistricting stuff, um, we, just, we just want it to be fair. Yeah. And Dan said, yep. Listen, gentlemen, I want you all to have a good night. And we got up and we walked out the door. And... <laughs> Wow. You know, we laugh about it, but the reality was it's not funny, and it's one of those things that, you know, from a personal standpoint, not being partisan at all. I mean, this is our republic, right? And and voting is a bedrock principle. 
of who we are as a country. And I wish, I personally wish, that the demographics that they were so callously casting around as pawns in a political game could be in the room and hear about how callous they are about it. I mean, this is, you're talking, this is January 2017, so we're talking three to four years before the state of North Carolina General Assembly even started discussing redistricting, before they drew the first map. They were already planning the lawsuits on unbased, un, you know, uh, allegations of whatever it is that they're suing on, right? This is just That's a game. Right. It, it's, a, it's a power struggle game. And yet, Mark Elias can write, "Hey, we just want something fair." You know, you, you and I, I definitely want to ask your opinion on what the Supreme Court justices here in North Carolina—that partisan split. Anita Earls receives quarter million dollars plus, you know, donation from this organization. It's it's very partisan. From an they got a partisan decision. To Eric Holder, who was running yes. the effort, right? Exactly. Yes. I mean, so you know, people are going to have to make their own decisions. Unfortunately, in the state of North Carolina, the Supreme Court somewhat is supreme, and. You know, my my hope, my you know, I believe that power closest to the people is where the power should reside. The General Assembly has a constitutional duty to redraw the districts. They did so. I think they did a fair and equitable job in doing so. And I would like to see, you know, the General Assembly starting to fight for their constitutional rights. They need to start standing up themselves. And I'm not saying they're not. And, and, and pushing back. And somehow we as a society have to start pushing back against judicial overreach. If, if judges want to legislate, they should hang up the road and run for the General Assembly or run for Congress. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's just unfathomable to sit there and listen to the, basically them uh, in that room three years before redistricting and talk about how they were going to fund this thing, judge shop, um, and, and basically eviscerate a whole group of people on un, 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 just baseless claims, right? And to watch that come to fruition four years later and to watch it play out right now. And we're watching it. And I just thought it was important that people knew this is, this is how the balance of power happens. This is what happens behind closed doors. This is what people do. And I think we all know that. I think we all suspect that. I just happened to be a fly on the wall on that day and watched it. And uh, it sickened me. You know, it really sickened me. We deserve better as people. And again, well, and, partisanship here. I, I'm just saying it as an American. We deserve better than that, right? I, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you looked at those maps, and you've been around this long enough, you've seen the maps from the early 90s, the midnight. I mean, you see these maps with the 12th district. They ran from, you know, Charlotte up two lanes of I-85 and up to Greensboro, these bizarre districts. And these were fairly compact that looked pretty good. But the, and again, the other thing that gets misquoted so much is there is no law against having somewhat partisan districts. There's nothing, you know, the Democrats drew them when they had advantage. Republicans have drawn them. But and, and they, they had trouble defining what fair was. I mean, Justice Newby even mentioned that. It got quoted out of context. But what's your thought on that? When these people in a state that's a third, a third, and a third with respect to unaffiliated Republicans and Democrats, depending on the given year, they, they didn't give the legislature a lot of guidance about what a fair map is. They gave no guidance whatsoever. They gave no guidance. And, so, and, and, and that's right. It, also, look at how they did it, right? The lower-level court that was bipartisan, two Republicans, one Democrat, voted unanimously that the General Assembly acted in accordance with the state constitution, that they have a right to do what they did, and uh, that they were uh, legally and equitably, you know, they, they were drawn appropriately. And so we should proceed. The Supreme Court filing opened. People started to file. The Supreme Court, the North Carolina Supreme Court, stepped in and said, no, we're going to allow the plaintiffs to have their day in court, Right. 
And if there are, are any appeals, uh, we will bypass the Court of Appeals and come directly to us. And again, not being partisan, but the Court of Appeals has a Republican majority, the state Supreme Court and the Democrat majority. It seems very clear why they did that, right? And, uh, and here we are. And it causes uncertainty and ambiguity with the voters, obviously with the candidates themselves. But the whole system kind of grinds to a standstill, and they gave no guidance. They gave no guidance on, on how to proceed. They're basically, further, setting it up to, they're basically setting it up to where they will make that decision. And well, they are not elected. The state constitution is clear. The General Assembly is the duly elected representatives of the state of North Carolina. They are the ones that are tasked with this. And again, to I your point, how? Yeah. To your point, not only did they do what they did with, with ambiguity, but they're allowing the plaintiffs, people who are not in elected office at all, to draw maps. And the judges can right. theoretically, from what I read in the decision, they can pick the plaintiffs. They can pick Mark Elias's team's maps. Exactly right, which is a complete, you know, overreach and a complete overrun of our state constitution. And this should not be acceptable, right? It should not be acceptable no. to, uh, it's like the, the constitution itself is being, the state constitution is being run roughshod over. And, uh, but, you know, we're seeing the overreach. We see the overreach out of Washington, where it's going to take state, strong state governors to stand up and fight against the overreach on the feds. But we're also seeing the overreach from the judiciary, both at the federal and the state level as well, where it's going to take strong general assemblies to stand up and start saying no. I remind people that when a court issues an opinion, if you actually look like when the U.S. Supreme Court issues an opinion, at the very top, it actually says on the parchment, in the opinion of the court, somehow we've allowed the judiciary to arise to an equal and opposite branch. You should read our forefathers' writings and what they envisioned the judiciary to be. They are to offer opinions. And what they have done is they're coming in with the force of the law and saying, now we're going to make those decisions. We're going to make those decisions. None of us are elected. None of us are held accountable to the people. And that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable to our republic and what our forefathers envisioned of how we would be governed. That's my personal opinion, but I feel strongly about that. And I think you're seeing that play Again, out right now. Our guest right. is they're going to allow Mark Elias potentially to draw the maps for the state of North Carolina in complete circumvention, complete running over the General Assembly's constitutional. Al, our guest, Hal Weatherman, you can see why I wanted to get on. Very passionate individual, someone who's been on the, the, the front lines of politics in North Carolina across this great state. And Hal, thanks for being a part of the broadcast today. Uh, we've got much more to go here on the afternoon. Pete Callender Show, Chad Adams, your guest host. We'll be right back after this. Time with Hal. <clears throat> Hal Weatherman. Uh, again, a, a brilliant political mind. Regardless of the outcome last year, I've known how for many years strategies are sound, his research is sound. COVID threw a lot off in 2020 with respect to the elections and who could raise money. There were many Democrats, by the way. If you looked at the Council of State races, you look at the Treasurer, you look at the, uh, the uh, Superintendent's race, you look at all the other Council of State, Labor Commissioner, Insurance, all of these, Auditor, and you look at what changed it, because of the way in which candidates could not raise money they couldn't get out there and campaign because the governor's trying to shame and embarrass anybody how dare they if they don't wear a mask then they're just going to kill people and and that kind of resonated because the media was all in with what you know, masking and then all this works and it and there were people questioning because they were looking back at previous mask studies and 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 they were being safe and they were i mean the, the dan's campaign the dan force campaign did a lot of fundraising online they did a lot of fundraising using zoom they anyway the point being that reflection shows that no matter what maps were going to be decided, they were going to sue anyway. 
So it wasn't like the North Carolina General Assembly that put a lot of time, effort, and energy following the Constitution. By the way, the Supreme Court of North Carolina did not cite precedent when they made their decision. In other words, they didn't look and say, well, due to previous stuff that was wrong, this is wrong. They came up with their own version, very partisan, 4-3 split. One of those who received a lot of money from the very people that wanted to disrupt and said they would judge shop, Anita Earls, was directly connected to the group that said they were going to sue Till Blue, that, that said they were going to do this. And if they were really interested in fairness, they would have gone to New York and looked at that gerrymander case and raised a ruckus. But they don't. It's not about fairness. It's about partisan control. It's about power. It's about power. And we're going to see, I mean, they're they're being told to do whatever. You want to get on the conversation, give us a call. You're welcome to be a part of that. And I'll try to get this right. So it's uh, 704 Five seven zero eleven ten five seven zero eleven ten. So seven zero four five seven zero eleven ten. Here, thankful to be at the helm today as Pete Callender's taking the day off. I'll be in tomorrow as well. News Talk eleven ten and ninety nine three WBT. Always a pleasure to be here. But I did want to make sure that you know a lot of folks understood what the heck was going on with with respect to these maps. This is no accident. This isn't like. That, that, oh, the Republicans did these horrible maps and they need to be adjusted. No, they were going to sue no matter what. And then the courts did a very poor job, and Hal touched on this. The courts did a terrible job of delineating, okay, here's what fairness means to us. Because they can't. They, they couldn't. So that, that's why the legislature was like, okay, what do you want us to do? Okay, we just don't want you to have these maps. We want different maps. We're not going to give you guidance on what, you, what they need to be, but just draw new maps and submit it to us. So it, it is an absolute mess. Now, again, a lot of different things going on. That was just one story today. One of the one of the tougher stories um, is, is this Joe Rogan thing. I want to touch on this. I don't want to spend too much time on the Joe Rogan story. If anyone has ever seen it, back from the news talk, well, it was a news radio or one of the shows, sitcoms he was in, absolutely hysterical show. Uh, a lot of folks were in that. But if you follow Joe Rogan's career, mixed martial arts guy, he's a fear factor. Hey, go eat these crickets and you can get to the next level. Eat the roaches, whatever. You know, you're a fear factor. guy. He's a comedian and he has a podcast and, and arguably the most listened to podcast anywhere. Is it because he's profoundly deep or unbelievably witty or that he has all the answers? He would be the first to say, if you're familiar with his work at all, he'd be the first to say no. He doesn't pretend to be the brightest guy in the room. He doesn't pretend to be the guy who has all the answers. He's just He has just interviewed many different people. If you listen to him long enough, you kind of get the feeling he's got more of a libertarian leftist streak than anything else. If you listen to his comedy, it's absolutely, absolutely hysterical. You can go back and look at his 2018 Netflix special, and you'll get a feel. Most of the people going after Joe Rogan, they've never listened to him. They don't really care. What they do care about is he's a threat. Anybody that has that many listeners who can tell you to question authority, to question the tyranny of masking, the tyranny of not discussing alternative treatments, the tyranny of not having open dialogue and asking about natural immunity. There's a lot of things that he just broached. He didn't say this is the right thing or the only way. He interviewed people, and that becomes a threat. And so then you had Rumble, an alternative platform that's trying to grow, offer him $100 million just to switch platforms. To leave Spotify and go over to theirs without restriction, don't have to edit anything. And then they start getting Joe to apologize for different statements he's made without looking at the context of when he said those statements. And it only goes one way. Well, they go after Barry Weiss, they go after Bill Maher, they go after anybody, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, whoever doesn't pull that media leftist, you know, Fauciism and just worship and fall at the feet of the CDC and the World Health Organization. 
You have a you have a pandemic that has ravaged the world, and we still don't know where it came from. And even said, remember, remember suggesting that it came out of the Wuhan Institute of Viral Technology, <laughs> suggesting it came from a place where they study these kind of things was considered moonbat crazy. You were a few sandwiches short of a full picnic. You were rowing on one paddle. You just didn't have the sense God gave a hamster. You didn't. If you said things like that, and now it is two, two plus years later, two and a half, we still don't know. We still don't know. Unbelievable stuff. But it is worth knowing. It is worth discussing. So the other bad news for that, and I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. There's a lot of great things. Look, we're, we're going to come out of this. Uh, freedom is breaking out. there. The, the truckers, who would have ever thought Canadian truckers Canadian flipping truckers would be the symbol of freedom. That them locking up Toronto, closing down, making the the charismatic leader Justin Trudeau go into hiding, afraid. And then when they told him, you know, they're going to penalize anybody that that helps the truckers with gas, then you have thousands of people grabbing gas cans and helping them out. The the complete and other repudiation, and they did it right. They didn't do it with violence. They didn't do it. They pulled the trucks in. They're, it's bothering, it's inconvenient, but they're not burning and committing crime. And now you've got a group, Truckistan, you've got a group here in the U.S. that's also considering either disrupting the Super Bowl or getting one all the way across the country to go to D.C. And this is becoming a big thing because you don't, you can't declare war on the trucking industry. We have no, we'll get no products. <laughs> they, they are the front line of the free enterprise system in this country. And they're like, why would you pass a mask mandate on us? We're in a flipping truck. Are you kidding me? Trucking, got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking, like the blue dog. So, as we head to the top of the hour, your guest host, Chad Adams, down at the coast on this gorgeous day. But I'll tell you what, I've got to get to the story about Mecklenburg, the confusion. If you want to be confused, you, you need not look further than your local news. You can find plenty of reasons to get confused, you can just look at it and try to apply any kind of systemic linear logic to it, and you will come up short. Only through smart core common growth uh, math, smart growth, whatever, common core math may get you to where some of these stories could ultimately make sense after about three years of plowing through a simple plus minus problem. So that's how confusing this gets. But I want to get to it. Because Mecklenburg County said so the school system has a mask mandate. Almost all of the counties around you do not around this station where this is heard Gaston union, these other counties, they do not have Lincoln. They don't have mask mandates in their kids. So the County, those county leaders, and this is from WBTV, Mecklenburg County leaders could recommend to end the mask mandate by next week. Mecklenburg County health director, Dr. Raynard Washington made the statement Tuesday after he cited improving COVID case night, uh, COVID-19 case rates at the Mecklenburg County board of, Commissioner's meeting. This is really encouraging news. I just wanted to share with you guys if we are in a position, literally, these are his words. I'm not misquoting it. Just want to share with you guys if we are in a position that this continues, we'll be in a position to make a recommendation to you guys to rescind the mask mandate. You guys, you guys, you guys. No evidence, by the way, that it worked. They, they, there's no, they don't cite the evidence that the mask mandate worked, that it really made a change in the alteration. But it's fascinating as you look through this story and you're like, okay, that's the county. So what does this have? So next week, they could just go and say, no, we're done. But over at the school system, the Charmec school system, largest in the state, public, they're keeping the mask rule. With news late Tuesday that Mecklenburg County's health director may soon recommend lifting the local mask ma- mandate for Charlotte Mecklenburg. Will Charlotte Mecklenburg do the same? 
No. Board members uh, Lenorna Ship and Ruby Jones said they're hearing from teachers and parents that masks are making them feel safe. Notice the wording on that statement. Make them feel safe. Doesn't mean they are safe. Doesn't make them. It makes them feel. It's about how you feel. It's not whether it works or not. It's about how it makes you feel. It's not that the science tells you you're safer or that the schools are a problem, the kids are a problem spreading and all this. No, 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 no. Makes you feel. I guess... Don't drive your car. If you were aware that how dangerous driving a car could be, would you ever drive a car again? If you were aware that the largest food poisoning case in the world was with lettuce over in Europe, would you just never eat lettuce again? Because it could, I mean, something terrible could happen. This, this fear, this irrational fear that we've developed is just astounding. Makes them feel safe. While board member Rhonda Creek, Cheek, sorry, a nurse, said the mask are causing, listen to this, mask are causing language, reading development, phonic struggles in children because they need to see a mouth. They absolutely do. So the damage, and, and I went through this at a school board meeting yesterday. I said on a charter school board. And looking at this, this is exactly our job is to educate kids. We are failing that. We were already struggling with it before. And so much COVID, billions of dollars spent. Hasn't been spent. It's there to be spent in school systems. They did a lot of things that will have no bearing on making those schools safer, and it will not make the educational experience better. We are failing our kids. We are failing your kids. The, not being able to learn, that's the task. So you just gave up on, on, in, in order to be safe or to, excuse me, as we said earlier, feel safe. It makes them feel Never mind the harm being done to the kids. Funny that that wasn't the, the, the chief area of discussion should be, are we harming our kids? The simple answer across the board, yes. They're moving, they're, they're falling behind in category after category after category. So you need to get the freedom back in the classroom. And you're teaching kids to have this irrational fear of things. Not having Look, I say this as someone whose mother is on a ventilator in a hospital right now. The results of ravaged COVID. Triple vaxxed. In the hospital. So don't act like I, I don't care. I do care. I genuinely do care. Kids. And, and even the stuff that's going on in our colleges in this state, making kids who have already had, have already been infected and have, have healed, you don't recognize any natural immunity whatsoever. You don't. You make them get a COVID test every week to get in school. Wear a mask in the classroom. Wear a mask in the classroom. Almost every college in the state. It's horrible for the kids. It's giving them a horrific college experience. Kids are dropping out of college. Sick of this. They're not seeing the value add. The fear. When in this nation's history did we ever get driven by fear? Oh, no. Don't cross that river. Something bad could happen. Don't hop on the, the wagon and head west. Don't. Something bad could happen. Probably will. Smallpox going to kill your kids. Probably going to hit some kids. These are the kind of things that we, we have this. We were not a country built on adversity to risk. We were a country built on entrepreneurship on creativity, on the desire to take risk, to, to, to go to the next mountaintop. It's the nature of who we are as Americans. And this this oddity, this, this group of individuals that want to act like we don't, that we live in some kind of world where, oh my gosh, I, I can't. This is, what do you think? You're going to be immortal? Live forever? Make a calculated decision for your own life. What's good for you? Make a decision for your own life. And, and and this amazing, I mean, these mandates and everything that everyone were talking about, it, it, it's really sickening. It's sickening the degree to which we've been manipulated into all of this bizarreness. Now, we've got a lot more to cover. I, I don't want to, we can dwell, you could literally talk about this pathogen forever. 
But we got a hard out. We're taking off, man. Be back after this. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to talk on the other side of the break about the inflation numbers and about all these economic consequences that are coming due. It's going to hurt all of us. We want you to be a part of the presentation of, of the show as well. Feel free to give us a call. We'll see you on the other side of the break. 